Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 will be starting at verse 1. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. And there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. But if there isn't one there and you need a Bible, just raise your hands and the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody else need a Bible? Is everybody good? Turn it to the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. And as you're turning there, I have two preliminary announcements to make. First, we've been praying and um, I don't know if it was Friday night or Saturday morning, but Sal, Sal Flores, his mother, went to be with the Lord. And it was something that was expected, but he never really are able to, um, you know, it's just, it's just our heart breaks. And so keep the Flores family up in prayer. I, I do not believe that they have any kind of arrangements that have been solidified as yet. Sal shaking his head. So um, we'll, we'll be putting information out as it comes in. Also, now this is a different person. Do not get the two confused. Our sister Nora went to be with the Lord a week or so ago. We are having services for her. This is not Sal's mother, somebody else. We're having services for her this coming Saturday at 11 o'clock. So if, uh, if you want to come and support, if you remember Nora, um, we could use some help, people serving. We're going to be serving some food afterwards for the family. Um, you're more than welcome to come and to help out and to do that work of ministry as well. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We'll be starting at verse 1. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak now, or we cannot now speak in detail. Father, as we look at your tabernacle today, I pray, Father, that we would see truly the fulfillment of it in your plan of grace and mercy, your sending of Messiah, and how, Lord, you work in our lives today. So make this real, make this practical, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, I'm going to take some time just in these five verses. We've done chapters the last couple of weeks, but um, for some of us, this will be a reminder. For some of us, this will be something new. But I've been speaking of the tabernacle kind of peppered throughout the book of Hebrew because it is a letter that is written to Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And as I've mentioned the tabernacle before, I don't know how much of my church really understands the tabernacle. And so what I'm going to be doing is a little bit of a topical twist here this morning. And we're going to be examining the tabernacle in detail. What is the tabernacle? Well, God, through a mighty hand, reached into the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt, and delivered his people. God's introducing himself to his people. They're going through the wilderness. God has a desire to dwell amongst his people. In order for that to happen, God commands Moses to build this tabernacle. This tabernacle was to be a picture of God's dwelling place in heaven. And so... Moses gets all of the information, gets people filled with the Holy Spirit, craftsmen and artisans, and they put together this tabernacle. And so when that pillar of fire or cloud goes up and moves on, then they move on. When it stops, they assemble this tabernacle. And I'll show you some pictures and whatnot. But they assemble this tabernacle, and when it's all finished, then the glory of God inhabits it. And as the glory of God inhabits it, they camp around it. And then when it's time to move again, then the glory of God rises up from it and they go and they disassemble the tabernacle and then they move on. And so the Jew, to his mindset, this is the proof that God is amongst us. We know that this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. And so what God has done and what the writer is writing to these Hebrews, he's showing of the fulfillment of Christ. He's showing, although the Old Testament was good because the Old Testament was of God, that what God has now is something better. Look at your heart. God took out your old stony heart and he gave you something better. He gave you a pliable heart of flesh. 
God has take judgment, taken judgment out of our lives, and he's injected grace into every situation. And even today, it's more of him and less of us as we grow in the knowledge of the, Je- of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look back at the old removed stuff and compare them with the new things in your life, you rejoice in this good, better thing that God is doing. The old was transient and preparatory for the new. The old that seemed so vital was just preparing us for what God was going to do. The theologian Jan Glidwell says, You can clutch the past so tightly to your chest that it leaves your arms too full to embrace the present. The problem for the Hebrews was they were finding it really hard to let go of the old and buy into the new. Matter of fact, it was a constant problem. We see this spoken of in the book of Galatians where the Jews were constantly changing or trying to, changing Christianity into a hybrid religion of Judaism, elements of Judaism and elements of Christianity, elements of grace, if you will. Matter of fact, the subject in the book of Galatians is circumcision. And the Apostle Paul says, paraphrasing, you can't do that. And we need to look at even the topics today of people who will be trying to add to grace the Sabbath. When do you worship Jesus Christ? It should be on the Saturday or should it be on Sunday? And there's this debate that rages. But once you start taking those things, Paul says, you can't just take one thing. You can't just take your own little pet belief. You have to do everything. And in essence, what he's referring back, do you really want to go back? No man was justified ever in the keeping of the law. Through the keeping of the law is simply the knowledge that we are sinners. We were in a desperate situation until Christ came. But when Christ came, there was the revelation of grace. And it wasn't up to me to be a perfect person because he, in fact, is a perfect person, being fully man and fully God. And it's because of that that we rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ. We don't use our freedom as an opportunity to live a life in the flesh, but we do need to rejoice not bringing these old elements that have been done away with and imposing them back upon ourselves or even upon others. Colossians chapter 2 Verses 16 through 17 says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But he says, the substance is Christ. And the substance has come and remains with us. And so it's because Christ is the substance of all of those things or the fulfillment of all of those things in the past, we rejoice in the reality of who Christ is and who Christ has created us, or maybe I should say recreated us, to be. And so the writer of Hebrews is laying side by side the Old Testament, and especially in chapter 9, the Old Testament sanctuary slash servant with the New Testament sanctuary slash servant. His desire is to show that the old was just a prelude to that which is new and better. So again, verse 1, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Important to keep in mind, that which was first was definitely of God, and in its day, it had to be done in God's way. So this morning, I want to take you through a guided tour of the tabernacle. It's essential that we get a good understanding of that before we're able to move forward. For some, again, it's going to be a reminder. For others, it'll be a revelation. We're going to be looking at that, which the common Jew, he probably, well, he did hear about it, but he couldn't go in and visit it. This is going to be brought to you by the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of that that we can boldly enter into the tabernacle. So the first thing, and we see some of these in today's verses, is to understand the materials that were there. These are the things that Moses was commanded to collect back in Exodus chapter 25. But there's meaning and purpose to all of these materials. Just again, we have to see in these things how they lead us to Jesus Christ. Christ was not a forethought, but Christ was what everything in the Old Testament was leading to. We look back and see that. The Jew was to look forward and see that. But in this day of the writer of Hebrews, he's once again wanting him to cross into the reality of the truth of these things. So when it comes to materials, you see gold, and you see a lot of gold. 
Gold represents that which is to be offered to a king. We know Jesus Christ is referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It was the purpose of the Apostle Matthew's Gospel to display Jesus Christ as the promised King. Gold, gold is symbolic of sovereignty and deity. Secondly, you would see silver. Silver represents purity. Christ was without sin. He is completely pure. In Psalm 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. And so again, silver, a picture of purity. And then bronze. Bronze, and we're not sure what their bronze exactly was. More than likely, it's a combination of copper and brass, but it doesn't matter. It represents judgment. And then there were the materials used for the garments of the priests in their curtains. We see linen. Linen is a picture of coolness, of cleanliness, and of purity. We see when we're in heaven in that picture that we have in Revelation chapter 19 that we will be dressed in linen. And again, it speaks of the righteousness of Christ or the purity of Christ that has been placed upon the saints. Goat's hair. Goat's hair, it's that which the tabernacle was covered with. This was a fabric used for tents. It was known for its toughness and its water resiliency. And then there are certain, basically three colors that were very prevalent. See, when you would, if you could enter into the tabernacle on the ceiling, what you would see. Now, the goat's hair would be on the outside, something very plain. But on the ceiling, what you would see, there was this linen that was stretched over and there was this tapestry that was woven into the linen. And you would see the beauty of it. We use this term, well, if you're on the outside, you don't understand. But in order to see the beauty of the Lord, you've got to enter in. In our relationship with Jesus Christ, you didn't understand Christ. You didn't know Christ until you entered into a relationship with Christ. It's then that you saw the beauty. And three main colors are blue, purple, and scarlet. Blue is symbolic of the skies or the heavens, and it reminds us that our God is God of all creation and all of the universe. Purple is symbolic of royalty and majesty, once again, that our God is our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Scarlet, we know that. Scarlet would be symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ that has cleansed man from all of his sins. And then badger skins. Badger skins, we don't know what a badger skin is exactly. I mean, we think of badgers as far as the, what is it, um, Michigan, that's Wolverines, I'm sorry. Wisconsin badgers, I think they are. Those little rodent kind of animals really mean. Back then, they could be a sea cow. It could be a, 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 an animal that dwells in the, the, the rocks and whatnot. We don't know, but again, badger skins were very prevalent. Again, this was placed over the tabernacle to protect the linen and the interior. Everything was made out of acacia wood, and I've always seen that as a brilliant picture of Jesus Christ. Because again, if this is the fulfillment of the Christ, what is it that upholds everything? Well, it's Jesus Christ. When your house, what is it that holds up your house? Well, it's not the drywall, it's not the stucco on the outside. There's a strong structure on the inside. Matter of fact, I was sitting at my desk last week. I think it was like Tuesday or something like that. Maybe it was Monday, and there was an earthquake. I think it was centered in Big Bear. But we had a good structure. The place didn't fall down. I haven't heard of any of your houses falling down. You must have had a good structure. Well, the structure for everything, you wouldn't necessarily see this, but it was there. It's acacia wood. Acacia wood is found in abundance in the desert. Now, it is to be the basis, basically, of everything that has been built. It is symbolic of the body of Christ. And I'm talking about the physical, not the church, but the physical body of Christ. Now, acacia wood, it's a tree that grows out of dry ground. It grows in the wilderness area because, again, the Jews are wandering through the wilderness. It's a thorny tree. We know that Jesus Christ, when he died upon the cross, had that crown of thorns. 
It's not a very pretty tree. It's described as knurled. So you've got all of these things that would be working against it as far as if you're looking for beauty. But this is what God has commanded them because, again, it needs to fulfill the picture and it needs to fulfill prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Again, the beauty, the beauty in the Lord is always from within. And Pearly, if you could, if you could show the first picture of the tabernacle. And so now we're going to have this opportunity to enter into the tabernacle. Tabernacle, it's the whole structure that you see there. It's basically a compound. The tabernacle itself is that. And these are a curtain. This is a courtyard that is in here. Now, you were able through this front door to bring the sacrifice. And the very first place that you would come to would be that that would be the brazen altar. And so this courtyard is 150 feet long and it's 75 feet wide. Now, if we were able to go and to enter into that courtyard, you would realize the same thing that the common Jew would realize, I'm coming into the presence of God. Because I would imagine when you would come through that, that front door there, and you would gaze upon the first thing that would get your attention would be the actual tabernacle. Now, what I just mentioned before is, is that tabernacle, well, you know God was there because, well, you wouldn't see Jesus Christ. You wouldn't see God. You would see the glory of God. I I remember I was an electrician, and we put this electrical service, and they had these big cabinets against the building. It was a McDonald's. We had worked all night. Edison was doing their part, and finally, it was in the morning. Everybody's tired, and it's still dark outside, and they were going to turn power on. So we turned all of our stuff off, and we got outside, and they go, and he's, he's removed from it. It's probably from here to the back wall, and he has this long, it's called a hot stick, that he goes, and he turns on his transformer, and you hear this big boom. And I look over at our cabinet that we had just installed, and through all the cracks you see this glowing. Well, there was the glory of somebody's mistake that was shining through. And now you wonder why I'm not an electrician anymore. No, that wasn't mine. That was theirs. If you're, you know, technical aspect, they left their shunts on the phases. Anyway... It was, it was uh, one-inch thick copper that was burning up or glowing like a filament in there. Anyway, you would see the glory of God. You would be aware of the glory of God because the glory of God can't be contained anywhere and it wouldn't be able to be completely contained in this tabernacle. So as you would be going in, the first mindset, the first thing you would have of your mind is, I'm entering in to the presence of a holy God. It's the thing that you should prepare your heart for as you come to church. Now, you're always in the presence of a holy God. There's no doubt about that. But as you're coming into church, you should come to a higher awareness of that. As you do that, then you're more prepared to receive what God has for you through the word of God. You would come into this courtyard and you would be standing before an awful God. Now, when I say awful, not the meaning that we have today. The idea is he's full of awe. That's what the word used to mean, that he is full of awe. You would just simply be beside yourself. This would not be the man upstairs. This would not be a spiritual grandfather. This would not be the big guy. This is the God who holds your life by a thread over the fires of hell. And it's because of his love and his compassion that he keeps you from the fires of hell even though you blaspheme him, even though you have slapped his face with sin, in an unsafe state, he kept you safe for your day of redemption. This is something that the Lord Jesus Christ wanted his disciples forever to realize in that pattern for prayer that the Lord gave us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, we prayed that the last song as I was coming up about the name of Jesus, that God's name would be hallowed or considered to be holy within our heart. Now, when we say name, we're not just talking about those letters. We're talking about the nature and the essence of God. 
we're talking about who God is. And the way I know who God is is expressed through his word, but it's experienced by my life. And I understand that God is gracious, and I understand that God is good, and it just lends me towards the truthfulness of who he is and the graciousness of how he continues to minister, watch over, and keep me. You would notice a couple of things as you entered into that courtyard. First of all, you'd see there's a lot of people here, and they're pretty busy. They would be the priests. The priests, well, they're going through their activity and they're running through their routines. They're continuously offering the sacrifice on that altar because man is continually sinning. Remember, there was no chair. Well, there was only one chair. We saw that last week. We'll look at that at the end of our study. But as for the priest, there was no place to sit because as soon as you offer one sacrifice, you got to do the next one because man is sinning and we got to constantly be covering the sin. I mean, just think what a full-time job it would be just to cover your own sin. Because you know your own sin. What if you're covering everybody's sin? That's beyond a full-time job, but that's their mindset. And what the Lord is doing, he's letting them to see, to know, to come to the understanding of how really an impossible task this is. But we know that Jesus, once he suffered for our sins upon the cross... He raised from the dead, and then he was seated at the right hand of the Father because what did he say upon the cross? It's finished. After all those years, after all those sacrifices, after all the blood of the bulls and the goats and everything else, finally, through the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it's finished. No longer are our sins covered. Now they have been done away just as if they have never existed. The Spirit would minister to your heart as you walked in, though, and you would come to the realization that you have no right to be there. Matter of fact, you'd probably be convicted in understanding that you shouldn't be there. And your heart would break as you would be unable to come into the presence of God. Kind of like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he stood before God in the throne of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He's coming to an awareness of his sinful nature, because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips what he's doing Isaiah previously has kind of exalted himself over everybody else but now he comes to the realization before God we're all sinners we're all unholy and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts You'd be ready to leave. You'd know you need to get out of it there, but then you see something that gives you hope. You understand that there is a way that your presence would be tolerated in the presence of God. If you could, we'll go to the next slide. This would be the brazen altar. The brazen altar. The altar is the place where sin is dealt with. It was God's barbecue here, if you will, But again, this would be the first place that regardless of who you are, let's just say you're a a priest or even a high priest that is going to end up having the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies, the first place that you come to is the place that sin needs to be dealt with. It's the first thing as I enter into Christianity, the first thing that's got to happen is that my sin has got to be dealt with. Coming into a relationship with God, first the sin issue has to be dealt with. Back then, a barbecue, today, a cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, there's no forgiveness, sin still remains. And again, there's only two places that this could ever occur. One was at this brazen altar, the other was at the wooden cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because keep in mind, the altar is the place where the sacrifice is offered up to God. The cross was the place where the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if you will, was killed and offered for all of our sins. And so you would place your hands upon the animal and there was that symbolic transfer of sin and then the animal was killed for our sins and that would cover sins, but then would Jesus Christ, what did he do? Remember when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that point when he was taking the sins of the world upon him. Because we know the wages of sin are death, because he has taken sin upon him, he was destined to die. 
Now, we know it's God's plan, but the picture there is that Christ had to die at that point. But at that point of death, he's just died as everybody else died. What's the big deal? But then we would know that he overcame death at his resurrection. And because he overcame death, we would know and understand that he overcame sin. We've never seen anybody, apart from some examples in the scriptures, that have come back from the dead. Nobody can bring themselves back from the dead. God has brought a few people back for his purposes, but no man could cause themselves or woman to be brought back from the death. Christ is the only one that was able to do that. So we have the altar and its fulfillment, the cross. And really the altar, either way, is the place where the innocent die for the guilty You would have that little innocent white lamb that never did anything to anybody. You would look at it and you would see the cuteness of it and all of that, but then it would be brutally killed because you're a sinner. It's the innocent dying for the guilty. And it's the same thing with Christ upon the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because he died for me one day, because he took my sin upon him, one day he's going to put his righteousness upon me. And so you come to the realization that because of the cross, because of the altar, God will hear your prayers. He will allow your presence. But then you notice something else. As you make your sacrifice at that altar, as you go past it, there's still some soil upon you. You're not completely cleansed. Now, you're cleansed of all of your sins at that moment at the sacrifice at the altar, but there's still another piece of furniture. Pearl, if you can go back to the tabernacle slide, there's stands in between the altar and the tabernacle. That's the laver, and then you can go to the laver slide. That's the laver. The laver is a bronze bowl filled with water for washing. You make your sacrifice, but you're still some we'll just call it some impurities of the world. In a Christian's life, this is a born-again believer, but there's still sin issues to deal with. There's still the need to go to maturity. There's still some of the old thoughts and the old beliefs that need to be purged from me. We all need that washing. Jesus was about to wash the disciples' feet. And what did he say in John 15, 3? You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And the, the picture here is, is because of the gospel and you believe the gospel, you're already saved. So in the, in, in the sight of God, you're already cleansed. But you know what? As you were out there walking in the world, you kind of stepped in it a few times. And you stepped in the garbage of the world. And you need to sit down here and you need to let, you need to let me cleanse your walk. I want a clean walk before the Lord. I don't want sin to muddy things. I'm going to heaven without a doubt. But we need that continuous cleansing that the laver has to offer. What's the laver? The laver today would be that book you got on your lap. It would be the word of God that cleanses us, continuously cleanses us. To stay in God's word, to understand what is right and what is wrong in the sight of God, to again come to a full awareness of God's grace and to rejoice in all that he is and all that he has for us. And so again, you've made your sacrifice for us. God has made the sacrifice on the cross. You make your sacrifice at that brazen altar. You come to the laver and you have that cleansing and then go ahead, Pearly, go back to the uh, tabernacle slide again. You come to this building, or this tent, really. It's 45 feet by 15 feet. It's, again, very plain, and this would be the actual tabernacle. So 45 feet from front to back, 15 feet from side to side. The fir- after the first 30 feet, there's another veil that is there, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But because of the previous cleansings, you're now able to enter in, and you're able to enter in boldly. There's no fear that is necessary to go in because sin has been dealt with. So you boldly enter in. For us, it's by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as you come into intimate communion with God, you see something striking. You've got the furniture there. And the furniture, the furniture tells its own story. 
and you're, you, you just have this awareness of these things that are represented here, and you come to the awareness of why I'm entering into personal fellowship with God, but the majority of what this speaks of is as I enter in, it's, I'm, I'm representing the people, or at least I'm being prepared, probably representing would be a better picture of, of, of this desire for ministry and this desire to, to, to minister to other people, that other people would be drawn closer to God. As I've been given this privilege to enter into God, that others would be, well, they, they'd realize that and they would have a desire as well, that God would better prepare me, but I would see what God's plan is. I'm not there to issue orders. I've come to receive instruction that God would direct me. And so this knowledge would come as I would gaze upon the furniture. Go ahead and show the menorah. The menorah would be in that front section, 45 by 30. The picture that you see here isn't real clear because it's encased in a glass enclosure. That was a picture my wife and I took when we were in Israel. That menorah that you see is solid gold. It's about five feet by three feet. It's been prepared for the temple when it's rebuilt. It's through the, the Temple Institute that they're the ones who put it together. They're the ones who are working towards that temple that we see is in existence in the book of Revelation. And so we're working towards that. But as you would enter in, there would be a menorah very similar to this one. And it would tell you the reason that you come before God is so that you can burn more brightly for the Lord. It speaks of the witness of the born-again believer. Now, really, the menorah is fulfilled in three ways. First of all, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We see in John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so that first part of that tabernacle would be well lit. Keeping in mind the actual glory of God is behind that other curtain. Also, it is fulfilled in the church. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers, we know them to be pastors, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Jesus Christ is the menorah, if you will, to the world. But because of that, his church is to be a menorah or a light to the world. But also his people are to be lights to the world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So again, keep in mind what this place is. These directions on how to build this, the tabernacle, and how to furnish it were given by God so that it would be a representation of the dwelling place of God in heaven. And the dwelling place of God in heaven is all about the witness. It's all about the witness of who he is so that mankind would know and mankind would come into that relationship with God. The next thing you would see in that front place would be the showbread. If you could show the showbread slide. The table of showbread. Those are loaves of flatbread that are on there, but nonetheless, it was also spoken of as the table of faces. Now, if you're the priest and you go in there to minister, you would be reminded through the menorah, we're to be lights to the world you would look at the showbread. Now, there were 12 loaves or 12 flats of bread that were there, and that represented God's people. That you would never forget that the only reason that you're there, the only reason that God would tolerate your presence is because God wants to use you. He has cleansed you so that you can come in, but God wants to use you. And as you are in there, again, if you were a Jewish priest, you're reminded that the reason I'm here is to represent these people to God and God to these people. It was a constant need to remind mankind because we become so full of ourselves. We, we become so self-important. 
and thinking that we're above somebody else, and it's just not so. It was from the midst of the people that God pulled the priest. It's from the midst of the people that Christ came. It's from the midst of the people that you were saved, and it's in the midst of the people that you minister and represent the Lord. And so this is symbolic of the continued provision of God, but also a reminder of those whom the priest is to serve. In Exodus twenty three twenty five, so you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. Fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything is. John six thirty two through 35, then Jesus said to them, most surely I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And so it was reminded daily that when they got up in the morning, there was always manna provided. This bread that came down from heaven that gave them life. There was no doubt about it. This was provided for by God. Now, when there's any major military operation, if you're moving a big army of troops, you got to maintain the supply line. And let's, you know, just, I, I look at the hospitality bills that we have every month just to maintain you guys and donuts and coffee and all of that stuff. It's substantial. So just think if you had 100,000 people that you had to provide three meals a day and all of the water for them. They just couldn't do it. Well, there was like three, there was two million men plus women and children. And they have to provide for them. They couldn't do it. So God was the provision. And so as you see that table of showbread, you're reminded that God provides for his people. So you've got this two-edged sword. You've got a picture of the bread that God has provided. He is the God who will always provide for us, and he provides for who? That which the bread represents, the people. Next slide is the altar of incense. The altar of incense was one foot by one foot by three foot high. Again, we see a picture of the physical body of Christ as it was gold and it was uh, the superstructure of, of acacia wood. But really what this altar, now this altar of incense, the incense that they would burn was to be a unique formula that is given in the book of Exodus. In the instructions, God told them, don't copy this formula anywhere. It was a sin to copy that formula and to burn it somewhere else. This was to be unique to the tabernacle. Now, days we have the, I call them vaporizers, and my wife always corrects me. We have those oil things that we you know, a lot of people, and I'm not saying anything's bad about it, but, you know, we have that, and sometimes you just go into a room, and it just kind of hits you, you know, it, it, you know, just because smell is so, such, it's such a strong thing, and brings to, to remembrance. Whenever I smell, I don't even know what it is, local brush that grows around here, and when it's damp outside in the hills, it gives off a smell, it reminds me of football coaches trying to kill us up in the foothills of Brea, it reminds me of that time, series of that time of suffering as we do wind sprints out in the oil fields and that smell on a damp summer morning was just so strong. And whenever I smell it, it just, even today, it's been so many years, it brings me right there how strong that is. Well, here, as the priest would go in, he would be hit by that aroma right away. And once again, he's reminded of what his reason, what his purpose is there for, that he's there for, it's to represent the saints. Now, what is incense representative of, or at least the, the aroma as it ascends to heaven? Well, we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, that won't be in the slide, but chapter 5, verse 8, it, it speaks of our, our prayers that have been offered to God, our prayers that are a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And so as I go in, I'd be reminded as I saw that altar that I'm there representing people that right now, there's people praying for me, especially if you were the high priest that was able to go into the Holy of Holies. I'm representing a nation. There's a nation praying for me on this high, holy day as I go in to, to minister to them all. I'm reminded as a born-again believer that these prayers, as they are offered up, they're going right into the presence of God through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it would be at that point that you would hit this curtain that is huge, six inches thick, and just insurmountable. You would think that you have hit a dead end at that very large and thick curtain, but now you have come to the Holy of Holies. Just before you would turn away, though, you would see there's an opening. It's been torn. It's been torn from the top to the bottom. So you've got Israel wandering through the wilderness. God had told them to move. He's the, the pillar has risen and it's moving. They packed up the tabernacle, the courtyard, and the tabernacle itself. They're going, and finally the pillar stops. This is where we're to camp. The first things the Levites and the different clans within the Levites would do, they would do their part, and they would set it back up. They would pitch the tent, if you will. They would set it all back up, put everything in place. Now, they would obviously, they would have the Ark of the Covenant, and they would be in the Holy of Holies because it's the only way to get it there. But the thing is, the glory of God has yet to enter in. So they would all go in, they would set that curtain up, everybody would go out, then the glory of God, the presence of God would fill that place. And at that point, no man could go in. Nobody could go in only under the penalty of death, except for once a year that a priest would, uh, the high priest would go in, and really you see this fulfilled, I guess, in a better way in the temple, but nonetheless, he would go in and he would take some of the blood of the sacrifice and he would cleanse everything that is in there. And the only way that he could go in is because the word of God allowed him to go in. Matter of fact, tradition tells us that they would have bales on and a rope around his waist. If God rejected him, the idea is, is that judgment would come upon him instantly. He would fall down dead. You don't want a dead body in there, and you would pull him out. Now, there would come that time when the glory would depart. It would rise up, and so that you would know at that point, the presence of God is no longer in that holy of holies. And so now we can go in, we can disassemble everything, and that we can move on. Well, Fast forward, because after Israel moved into the promised land, during King David's day he prepared, Solomon built the temple, there was no more tabernacle, and so the temple was a permanent structure. Now I know it was destroyed for a period of time, but rebuilt again, but fast forward to the time when Jesus Christ was upon the cross. Now all of a sudden, there was still this this curtain that stood before man and God in the Holy of Holies, but there's the death of Jesus Christ. And one of the miracles was that curtain being torn from top to bottom. Something that would have been impossible for mankind to do, very easy for God to do. Why is it torn from top to bottom? Because the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world, has now given access to all born-again believers. And again, as we see in the book of Hebrews, you can boldly go in. Now, if you were the priest, the high priest, and it was your lot, they would cast lots, which one is able to go in. I won, I get to go into, you know, I'd tell you, I get to go into the tabernacle tomorrow, into the Holy of Holies, and cleanse it. You would say, that's really great, and I'd be all excited, and everybody's slapping me on the back, and the whole thing. All night long, I'd be thinking of every dirty, rotten thing I've ever done. Every sin that I've ever committed will be brought back to my remembrance, because I know how we are, and we all know how we are. And then all of a sudden is, what if I've left something undone? What if I make the sacrifice and my sins are covered? I do that washing and I have that cleansing at the laver, but what if I have a bad thought between the laver and the entrance? What if I stub my toe and I let out a curse? You know, whatever it might be. It doesn't take much opportunity for us to sin. And so as I go in there, I wouldn't go in there very boldly. I'd go into the presence of king, the king begging for my life. And, but you, you're a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. You can go in and you have absolutely no worry because you're covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. My grandchildren can come into my house, not a problem. Somebody came into my house, came walking into my house that I didn't know, there would be a problem. One day I'm sitting here in my office, I don't even know why I should say this, but anyway, I'm sitting here in my office and I hear somebody in the resource room and there's nobody else here. And I go up there, and somebody had left the front door open, and a salesman came in. And he walked all the way down the hallway into the resource room. He's selling copiers. He turned on the copier, and he's making copies. And it's like, excuse me, who are you? And he told me, and I told him, well, you need to leave. I was just really upset. And he's probably blessed that I didn't have a gun. I would have shot him. Not really, but I would have liked to. 
But now we have that confidence that we're able to enter into that holy of holies. Again, that veil has been torn from top to bottom. And you can say, that's only for the priest, I'm not a priest, but you are. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, you're a chosen generation. This is a generation that has come about when Christ was revealed. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the idea here is you come out of darkness, you can come into his marvelous light. And that speaks of the glory that is contained in that holy of holies in the tabernacle. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who have obtained mercy, who have not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. You are now the people of God. When I use my grandchildren, they're people of Mike and Terry. They're good. But if you're not a people of Mike and Terry, then you're not going to be so good when it comes to just walking into a place. We're people of God. You can boldly enter in because we've been accepted. And then this last piece of furniture, if you show the Ark of the Covenant, is just that. This is the Ark of the Covenant. To the Jew, this is really what is symbolic of the dwelling of God in their midst. Above the wings of those angels in this area here, I assume that's where the glory would be. That priest, as he would go in there, he probably told others, that's where he was. In their mindset, that was the throne of God. That's where God sat. And so you can imagine how holy that is. That's why there's always this mindset of where is the Ark of the Covenant of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, or scriptures for today, it says, which the golden censer, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim, that's those two angels of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's basically saying, I haven't seen it. It hasn't been seen since the days of Jeremiah. The things contained in this, now this was a wooden box, basically, again, of acacia wood, that it was overlaid in gold, but the things contained in this box of wood and gold are what we have in Christ. You had a jar of manna. They scooped up some manna and they kept it as a remembrance. Jar of manna, again, a remembrance that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. You have Aaron's rod that budded. It speaks of new life from that which was formerly dead. And then you have the tablets of covenant, which always remind us to look to the word of God. And then you have the mercy seat or the lid of the ark again, which speaks of the throne of God. Leviticus 16.2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. So it's only on the day of atonement when God was inhabiting the holy of holies that the priest is able to enter in. And then we see how this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus said, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Because once again, it's through the blood that we are now able to enter in. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody's able to enter in. Nobody's able to come to the Father, but through me. Go ahead and turn over to John chapter 1, and I'm going to close there. John chapter 1, verse 14. <clears throat> when John, wanting to speak of the reality of Jesus Christ, now we saw Matthew's purpose, Jesus Christ is king. John's purpose for writing his gospels to display Jesus Christ as God, and he's going to show how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and especially that which we've just been talking about. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word, he's already described the Word as being Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. The Word wasn't flesh before. Jesus Christ was dwelling in the heavens, but he became flesh. And he dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, it says, and the word became flesh. When you see the word dwelt here, that word can also be translated tabernacled. 
And that's the idea of what John is speaking of. He's got that in the back of his mind, writing to Jewish believers as well. The Word became flesh. There was a point in time when the Word became flesh, and he tabernacled amongst us. What John is wanting us to do is exactly what we did here this morning. He's wanting us to go back and to see what God has given us, these rich pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, it's what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with, with the reader of Hebrews. Those Jews that are trying to rectify, justify maybe, that which was of the old, which was so ingrained into them, but now here's this new that, well, to make that leap of faith is a hard thing to do. Now, if you're a born-again believer here today and you were religious before, there was a lot of those old religious ideas and doctrines and liturgies and all of that stuff that you had to leave behind. And some of that stuff was hard to leave behind because it was so ingrained into you. That's the hardship we face when ministering to somebody who's locked into a religion but not a relationship with Christ. That was hard for me. I was a lifelong Catholic, at least up to that point. And just to put all of that stuff behind me and to move forward, there needed to be some understanding and some convincing. And so that's what's going on with the writer of Hebrews, but also in the Gospel of John as well. And so what John is showing, what the writer of Hebrews is showing, all of those things of the Old Testament, they all pointed to Christ. And understand this, something better is here. Something better those who come into a relationship with the Lord, not by doing, but simply by believing. Father, we just thank you that you have revealed these things to us today. And I just pray, Father, that we would rejoice in the truthfulness of your word because, Lord, it's that scarlet thread that is woven throughout the Old Testament but is revealed in the New Testament. And because of that revelation, Lord, we just rejoice. And I pray, Father, that you will continue to strengthen our faith and show the reality of your truth. I pray, Father, that on this road to maturity that today, I pray, Father, that today was a, a, a big jump, that, Lord, we would continue to be students of your word, continually studying understanding, digesting, processing these things, and allowing these things to become part of who you are creating us to be. And so, Father, again, we just thank you for this morning. We just pray, Lord, that you would bless us. I pray for Nora's family, Lord, especially this week as we celebrate her life, that you would, that, Lord, you would minister to them and meet them where they're at in the midst of their morning. And I pray the same for the Flores family as well. And just pray that you would bless them. And, and Father, I pray for witness to those who are unbelievers. And God, that you would use all these things together for your good. But right now, we just thank you that you have given us this day. We just pray, Father, that we would be a people who would rejoice and be glad in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.